But that's that mentoring experience. And that's what podcasts, and that's what we hope our podcasts become for people, is an opportunity to, to almost like a masterclass situation. Because uh, there are teachers out there who, who are rock starting, uh, who understand what it takes to do what we do. But nobody knows who they are. Nobody's heard their voice. No one's, no one's, you know, there's not a camera in every teacher's room capturing all these moments and, and putting them in a file. And you may have never experienced it, and then you may listen to it on a podcast, and then all of a sudden you experience it, and it's like, oh, I remember them saying, okay, this is how you, okay, got it. And even though it may be like, no, I can't do that, but it gives me an idea. It sparks an idea in my mind of what I can do. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I host this podcast along with my guy, Wilkie V. Law III. Now, uh, this podcast you're about to listen to is the fifth time or sixth time or seventh time we've talked with our good friend Gary Gray Jr. Um, unfortunately, Wilkie was not able to join um, on this particular podcast because he uh, came down with COVID the day that we were recording. Uh, so we hope to get Gary back on soon to have a chat with Will and Gary and catch up with all of that. But um, when we say this is um, a guy that inspires us, feeds us, you know, reminds us why we do what we do, that is the truest statement. Um, always a guy that's willing to give advice um, and just really cares about kids and the profession and writing and stories. So we're glad to share this episode with you. So please enjoy this episode. The first episode of the ABCs of Inspired Teaching for 2022 with our guy, Gary Gray Jr. Folks, welcome to the first episode of 2022 of, well, actually, really the first official episode ever of what we are now calling um, the ABCs of Inspired Teaching podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. Um, I have my guy, Wilkie Law. We think he's somewhere. He's probably sleeping currently. So uh, we'll, we'll edit him in, hopefully, at some point mm-hmm. if he um, wakes up here. But I am, and I know he is thrilled to have the first, I mean, really the only five-time, six-time. I don't know. Are we five-time, six-time? I think it's like six, I think. Um, our good friend, Gary Gray Jr., back on the podcast, man. It's good to see you. We've been chatting a little bit um, over the last few minutes waiting on Will, man. But it's great to see you, you know, in the internet flesh. I know. Same. Likewise. And I always tell you guys this, but you guys are like blood now, man. Like you guys, it's, I literally, I don't even know, like six or five times now that I've, that I've talked to you, I feel like family. So I just appreciate the time and you sharing space and shout out to Will. Like he's, I know he's been busy as well. He's doing, he's in school, he's teaching. So um, yeah. yeah, I'm just super happy to to be able to share space with you um, today. Yeah, man. You know, when it, and I was, maybe that was the, I don't know if it was the COVID summer or the summer before that we were, we thought our paths were going to cross in Toronto, but I think neither one of us wound up being back and you know the travel restrictions over the last two years um Mm -hmm. have not made it easy to travel and and do all that stuff but we're we're happy to be back with you and and excited to hear about what you've been what you've been up to because i know you've been doing some different stuff so 
Um, let's just, you know, for our podcast listeners, let's talk, you know, a little bit about, you know, for those that might not have, you know, listened before, who you are, what you've been up to, and especially, um, you know, what you've been up to over the last year, because you've been doing something a little bit different. So just kind of give our our listener a list, our listeners an update on how you've been and what you've been up to. Sure. Yeah. Like I think over the last few years, it's just been crazy. So, you know, life comes and goes in so many different ways, but I am a black educator from Canada um, who's been, who's been international teaching for about 10 years now. Uh, Started in Kuwait, went from Kuwait to Singapore to Manila. And next year, actually we're moving to uh, Vietnam to teach at the United Nations school. Yeah. So we're super excited about that. Um, you know, last year, COVID has been just difficult, um, for everybody. So, um, with all the blessings and a little bit of luck as well, I had, I had some time to sit with some writing that I've been working on for a really long time. Um, I pitched it to an agent, uh, agent liked it. And, uh, by the end of the year, last year, I ended up with a contract to write two picture books uh, for HarperCollins. So just super blessed. I spent the whole year this year, and I'll spend the majority of uh, the new year um, continuing to write. And it's been a journey, you know, like, just like kids in the classroom, like you, you, you need the time to process, you need the time to revise, you need the time to edit, you need to make sure you're talking to people about your work. Um, but it's been a learning experience and I've been loving every minute of it. I mean, you know, you also get X amount of time to watch sports if you want to, (laughs) not in the classroom. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and that's something, you know, we've just kind of started talking about the project. I mean, this, this thing we're writing that I sent you a little bit of a chunk of has been like a four year process Mm -hmm. to get it to where it is now. And one of the things I really love that you that you do, especially on your Instagram, is you're like you're like real. You're like sat down to write for an hour, nothing came out. Yeah, had to true. had to go for a run, had to do those things. And I think that's not just you know the writer me feels that, but like the teacher me feels that too because there's so many times where you sit down at your computer to write a lesson or to do to grade or do whatever. And it just like, it's just not happening. And there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of like guilt and shame in that of being like, I'm not going 120 all the time. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, Mm -hmm. that's something I always have appreciated about you was the, the realness of what you post and, and what you're going through. So in those situations, how, how, how do you handle it when you're, you know, trying to write, you know, you got to write, you're on a deadline, but it's, it's just not, it's just not flowing. You know, it's so interesting because one of the things that I've realized in, just like you said, like you, as an educator, you connect everything to what you do daily and being out of the classroom, that's what I've been doing. So I think we don't normalize the idea of revising um, in the process enough, especially for kids. Um, so I'm seeing that even more as a writer now. Like you can't, you can't revise something in a day or sometimes two days a week, a month, etc. The, the piece is really never done, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing as, as educators 
to help kids realize or understand that when they're writing something or producing something, that it's okay to sit with the revising process um, and understand the different ways of, of revising as well. And then within that, understanding that we need to also take breaks mentally, physically, emotionally from something that can become draining um, over time. So like you said, some of the things I've been doing is like meditating, eating is like really important, like stopping and eating something, <laughs> right? Um, going for a run, watching a short movie, um, watching something that really inspires me in regards to other authors, just talk about their process has been really um, rejuvenating as well. I don't know, at least for myself, if, I, if I've done that enough in the classroom, having kids hear other authors talk about that revising process, that editing process to make it feel more normal because it's hard. <laughs> it's not a, an easy thing to do. Um, but I think, yeah, just trying to be patient and, and really trying to normalize the, the idea of revising has been extremely helpful. How did, how did the decision to, to move to Vietnam come about? <laughs> Sorry, I just threw like a wrench at you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's awesome. And to teach at a UN school, I think will be fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, being out of the classroom, obviously, um, you know, like it's, it's never been a dream to be out of the classroom. I think the dream has always been to write. Um, I didn't know that I would miss kids as much as I did. Um, I think part of that is knowing that the book doesn't come out for a little while, um, not having the interactions with kids, um, and then thinking like, oh, you know what, I kind of miss teaching. We are kind of in a position in regards to educators in like the international world to I don't, I don't know if we're in a position to, but we told ourselves that we are going to have X number of schools that we want to go to. Um, if we don't get into those schools, we'll figure something out. We may even come home. Um, but because we've been teaching for 10 years, we said, these are the schools that we will apply to. Hopefully we get into one of those. And I also told myself, you know what, like if I get into one of these schools, I'll go back into the classroom because those schools will also inspire me while I'm there. Um, and luckily enough, the school in the um, in Vietnam reached out. We went through the process, um, and I obviously said yes. And I think partially because of the work that they do in regards to the United Nations um, sustainability goals, um, the stuff they do with like equity and diversity. Um, and I know, based on the people that I've talked to, the other educators there, um, that my writing will also just get better being around people who will continue to like inspire me um, within education as well. So next year, dude, um, from Manila to, to Vietnam, it's going to be, it'll be wild, but I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you think there's still a chance that you, you know, come home at some point that, you know, you move back permanently? Um. You know, it's I, I got that a, a close friend asked me that a few days ago, and I am a homebody. Like I am, I love being home. I think, I think I do, or I think we do, eventually. Um, I don't know when, and, and I think that's kind of where I just I have it right now. I think 
my wife loves being international. I love it, but there's also a but in there as well. Um, mm-hmm. But we don't have a, we don't like to put deadlines on anything. Um, I think we're going to just kind of play it by ear, see how we feel year to year. It's usually two-year contracts, so that also helps us a little bit in our decisions, but we don't know exactly how long. Um, and we also love traveling, which is, it helps being on yeah. that side of the world. Makes it a lot cheaper, that's for oh, sure. <laughs> for sure. You know, we're talking... <laughs> you can probably travel to any of those beautiful places that you post about for less money than it would take me to get to Vegas. That is actually true. (laughs) Like, I mean, unless you're going to like Denver or Atlanta. Yeah. It's it's getting to be expensive, but yeah. um, So in how, how is the COVID situation over by where, y'all are if you were teaching this year would you still be virtual are they masked or what are they um in manila the covid situation you know what go manila philippines in general because of where they are located they okay they they had covid for one which is just not good for anybody and just hurts the community but most recently i think almost a few I think a few days ago they had a typhoon but this is like they don't just get like little typhoons they get like level four level five typhoons like regularly and I don't know the exact number but they get like a few a year um the kids are back in the classroom and these are like the kids that are going to like the international school um but it's like hybrid so and I just know this through my wife they have half of the kid, you know, hybrid learning. So they're half in the classroom, half at home, and then they just switch. I don't know what it looks like for elementary, um, but I know just before I came home, which was like early, just by I think the end of November, um, they were just starting. But before all of that, I think two years ago, it was all online, online for the majority of the two years. And it was hard (laughs) really hard (laughs) really really hard um my middle school you know minneapolis and paul area is back full like all day every day we got to wear masks every day um Mm -hmm. but otherwise things are pretty back to normal like my hometown and like small town wisconsin where i came from nobody's wearing masks at all um which is you know, it's, it's interesting how your perspective changes with it. You know, like I spent two thirds of last year at home. And then when I came back in the spring, it was, you know, like you, it reminded me of what I missed about being with kids, but it's, um, it, it's so strange to me and it shouldn't be strange because it's the way the world is, how people who are so close geographically can, you know, be doing things that are so different. Um, and you know, even my perspective on it changes. Like, I think when the, when, when the pandemic started, I was very nervous about COVID. Like I was very, like, I got to do everything I can to not get it. I got to make sure that I don't give it to other people. If, if I do get it, is it going to impact, you know, us trying to have a baby? Am I going to be in the hospital? And, you know, now I'm at the point where 
I feel comfortable that I'm pretty healthy. And if I did get it, I like, I should say this. I'm not trying to get it. I don't want to get it. But if I got it, Mm -hmm. it would be okay. It would be annoyance. It would be a pain, but I could deal with it. So it's, it's just so strange to be here and be thinking about like, or just be paying attention to how differently different places get it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I think that's the case now in a lot of places because though we want to be safe, though we want to make sure the people around us are safe, we are frustrated with the fact that we are, there's like this pushing forward of like getting better, getting better, getting better. Things are opening up, things are getting normal. And then all of a sudden it's like, not anymore. Doors are closing. Not as many people allowed to be around each other. Like so many different restrictions and it becomes frustrating. And I think the hardest part about all that is like, we also have people who are continuing to die, um, continuing to get these illnesses that are life threatening. And it's just makes it very difficult for the world to continue on when things like this happen. Like, is this a case where every year during this time when families are home and people are traveling, like, do we shut down the world? Like, I don't know. Um, But it's definitely something that has been difficult for a lot of people for a number of different reasons. Um, what is the situation where you are now in Nova Scotia? It's been ramping up a little bit with like the new variant and the just more cases. I think it's all, like Nova Scotia has been really good. I think mainly because they've been really strict in regards to um, who goes where, that getting your vaccination. Um, but most recently there was a couple, um, outbreaks at a university, um, a few people traveling in and out. So they're kind of doing what I just said and starting to limit the number of people who are gathering together, um, limiting the number of people who are going into restaurants. Um, and I think they've always men- had a mandate on mass, um, since COVID started for the most part, um, unless you're like exercising outside and stuff. So. See, that's, that's one of the things like here where we live in the Twin Cities, like you go into a grocery store or a restaurant or a church or wherever, and there's hardly anyone wearing masks. Wow. Um, And it's, it's just so, so strange how different it is, you know, in the different places where, mm-hmm. where you might be. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish that I could go back to not wearing a mask and seeing my kids. The strangest thing about school this year is, you know, you go to lunch and you see the kids when they're eating lunch and they take their mask down and you're like, Oh, that's, that's what you look like. That's not what I thought you looked like, but it's so good, true. Good time. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. I, I want to ask a question that popped into my head when we, you know, got started, that's not on the paper. Um, and I'll give a little background for people listening. Like you were one of the first people to really inform me about, you know, what is, what is being, and I, and I say the term in air quotes because America is America, critical race theory and the proper telling of history and, and different perspectives. Um, obviously, I'm sure you've seen how, you know, divisive that has become in America and how, 
what what you taught me it was and 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 what I try to do and teach my kids is different from what the media and and politics say critical race theory is so do you mind just maybe given your perspective from the outside of you know again what what critical race theory and and that pursuit of you know telling people stories in the right way is and and what it looks like from the outside when you look at the way america is handling it yeah it's such a um yeah, I don't mind talking about it. I know it's such a touchy topic in America. And not, you know what, not just America, like we've had the conversations in our schools um, internationally, and there's lots of panels that are happening internationally where we're talking about um, equity, which is not critical race theory, um, you know, and there's talk about like diversity and I just find it strange. Like, I think one of the main things that I noticed in America, and I don't, I honestly try not to to look anymore because it just, honestly, it hurts my heart thinking about the number of kids um, that aren't going to be able to get opportunities to to get the simple things that we feel that are granted to them in life, like books. Like, when you are, like, the big band on, like, the different types of books, um, I, I just, I have a really hard time understanding and I just don't get how people think it's okay to erase someone else's story. Um, I just find that really, <laughs> I just don't get it. I just really, really don't get it. I don't have the words to even explain how um, sad that is because there's so many kids that are going to be, um, that could value from that book. And then on top of that, there's so many kids that need to read that book to understand those kids as well. So you're just like erasing so many people, um, so many kids um, in, in their opportunities just to understand themselves and people that are similar to them by deciding that these types of ideas, which isn't critical race theory, um, shouldn't be in the classroom. Um, it's just, it's really heartbreaking. To be honest, um, it's really heartbreaking. I, I don't know exactly what's happening in each state. I know that certain states are a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is, um, I guess angry than others <laughs> about the types of books that kids are reading or the type of content that's being taught. Um, but I guess my question is like, what do you, what do you say to all of those kids that aren't white in your classrooms? Like that their history and their backgrounds don't matter. I don't know. Yeah. And, and I think in a second, I want to come back and ask you like to, you know, for you what critical race theory means, but like the strangest thing for me is, and, and even just learning, there are huge, geographic swaths of america that have very few people of color yeah you know so if you take a town like where i grew up there are school board meetings every single time where someone is talking about making sure we don't teach critical race theory yeah and you hear 
And, and I think, you know, learning from you and from other people, you know, critical race theory is not saying that everyone in America, every white person is a racist. I if know. You accept it and you believe it. And it's so strange to me how, because I tried to dive in, you know, this past summer and look and, and understand where it's rooted in and where it comes from. Um, you know, it's the strangest thing that now, like, woke the word woke, which, you know, just kind of came into our lexicon not very long ago, is like an insult here now. Yeah, it's like dangerous. It's like, yeah, like you're, you're like too woke. You're like too woke and you're too this and you're too that. But, you know, for me, just, and I've told you, man, I grew up in a spot really until I went to college. I didn't know any people of color. Mm -hmm. except for, you know, a few of the Native American kids that came to my school and a few Hispanic kids who whose families came to my town to do migrant work. So they mm -hmm. very rarely stayed. But it wasn't until I moved to Houston that I really had relationships with people of color and, you know, started to understand it. So, you know, for you, what is that term, you know, critical race theory, being woke, what, whatever, however you would want to say it, what does that mean to you? Because I think it's important to try to, you know, talk with teachers about, you know, what it actually means. So if they're in a conversation with a parent, they can articulate what, what the work is actually trying to do. Yeah, I think, again, when we think about kids in the classroom in regards to elementary, middle school, high school, um, the idea of how we uh, we don't talk about a theory in how white people like I think the word is like governing or um, construct ideas or systems behind like the laws or um, behind the like the big things in in which how they affect people of color or those who identify in like um, the BIPOC um, category. Like we, that's not what we do as educators, like as elementary, middle school, high school teachers, we don't do that. Um, we talk about equity, which is very, very different. Um, we talk about, um, uh, we talk about like identity in understanding like who we are as people. We talk about like um, injustices in the world and why they happen and what we can do to stand up to those things. And those things aren't theories. Like these are, we often use people who have done these things in the world as examples and we relate to them through books. And when people say that we're teaching these kids like a theory and they often say that we're like teaching like kids to hate white people, that is, that doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Um, yeah. Again, it just erases different perspectives. Like it literally says in most standards in school, like to have to teach different perspectives about things and then have kids synthesize that information and come up with their own ideas on how they feel about it. But yeah, it's just, again, mind boggling to, to really think that people believe that we're trying to brainwash kids to, to hate other people. And that's yeah, what I continue to hear all the time.
the word they use here is indoctrinate. That we're trying to yes. indoctrinate our kids. Um, and, you know, if Will were here, he would say we're trying to indoctrinate them with good character. But, like, for me as a, you know, a middle eighth grade social studies teacher, I'm getting these kids at a time when they're really starting to form their own ideas. Mm-hmm. But those ideas are very informed by their parents. So, you know, me pointing out, like, hey, redlining in housing in America is a verified historical practice that mortgage companies and banks and and property managers did to ensure that people of color only lived in one neighborhood. Exactly. <laughs> and there are stories around America now where the same house in a black neighborhood is not worth as much as the same house in a white neighborhood. That is, that is institutional. That is a system that is biased against people of color. I can yeah. teach my kids about how after World War II, after like the American army had already been integrated, the GI Bill wasn't extended to black soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> like I can show you historical fact. Mm-hmm. But, you know, parents go to school board meetings and they're shouting at the top of their lungs about how we're not going to teach our kids that being white is bad and we're not going to do this and we're not there's like critical race theory from everything I've read does not say anything about individual people. It talks, like you said, about institutions and systems. Like you yeah. can't tell me that the American justice system isn't skewed <laughs> against, or maybe you don't even have to say against it's skewed for people who look like me. Like it's just, it's a fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's in the there's like just numbers in general that say that it is so like i don't know how people again don't they i guess they use the numbers when they want to um and they also use the examples that they want to and i hate and i just i don't know why but i clicked it and i shouldn't have i don't know who it was but they continue to use martin luther king as an example of someone who like I love Martin Luther King. I think what he's done for the world is amazing, but you should not be using him as an example of like, they say, oh, well, Martin Luther King didn't want this. No, you're getting it all wrong. Like you're getting it all wrong. He's not on the side of like, you know what? We shouldn't teach kids about different perspectives. Like yeah, it's just- the governor, the governor of Florida, <laughs> who has done it, was the guy who did it most recently. Oh my god! It, okay, maybe that's who it was. And I, sh- I knew I shouldn't have clicked it. I knew I should know, but I had a feeling it was going to be bad as soon as I, as soon as he started talking. I was like, wow, you just used Martin Luther King in your speech about wanting to basically stop kids from learning about who they are. They can. To my understanding, the bill was that parents could sue schools who teach critical race theory. That, yes, I think that's what it was. I think that's what I was reading. And, and, you know, with Will in Texas, that was one of the places where they started banning books. And they started, you know, putting together legislation that said you have to tell both sides of every story. And there was, I don't know if you saw this story, but there was like 
recordings of a of a staff meeting where the teacher's like if you're teaching the holocaust you have to teach both sides and the teacher like raised her hand and was like what do you mean both sides mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. aren't two sides yeah the holocaust yeah, I think, is bad <laughs> it's, i yeah i think oftentimes when people say so like what are you teaching i often like to believe that it's more of along the lines of like how to be more culturally responsive or like mm-hmm. more sustaining pedagogies at like at best, to be honest. Um, like, yeah. do we have K twelve textbooks that talk about like critical race theory? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, but for me, trying to and I will say it was way harder during virtual last year when I wasn't like up in front and people didn't like really get to know me for people to mm-hmm. like change my words around and and do those kinds of things but I haven't had any problems this year with my kids cuz my kids know me and they yeah. know that I'm like not about that but yeah you know we we have to have a discussion about like the lasting effects of slavery yeah i mean cuz like in america like we should really i mean that and that's one of will's points is like we should really be talking about actually how bad slavery was. Cause it's much worse than what I was taught or he was taught mm-hmm. in our textbooks. Mm-hmm. I remember it was just like this little diagram picture of like cotton went to Europe and then Europe took guns to Africa and Africa brought people. And that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. But those, I think- it isn't like, I don't know. I, I just remember seeing online when I guess it's still happening, but I believe that like critical race theory is some, I, I think I believe in everything that I've read about and there's tons of threads online about it. Like, isn't it something that's taught in like, um, like law school or something like that? It's, like, yeah, it was a collegiate, it was like a sociology study that asked the question in like the late 1970s and the early 80s <laughs> after after the civil rights movement of the 1960s and there was legislation passed the you know the civil rights act and the voting rights act you know 20 years later why hasn't the situation changed for people of color yeah why is their situation not improving why don't they have the rights that they're supposed to have yeah yeah and it's be and it, and they propose that's because all of these systems are still ingrained with those discriminatory practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I can I, even yeah. remember growing up, I can remember growing up like, you know, we live right by the Mall of America. And I can remember being a kid when the Mall of America opened and observing people that would walk, you know, out wide around black people. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's even just those little things. It's those little things that people do day to day that, you know, reinforce some, you know, that something's wrong with, you know, people of color. Yeah, it's, it's wild watching it all happen. And then seeing, I guess, and I put that in quotations, like people in power, like talking to people, crowds of people about their ideas of, what's being taught in the, the the classroom and some of these people aren't even a lot of these people 
they're not educators. So that alone is yeah, just that, like... Yeah, that, that puts me in a, in a totally different <laughs> spot to talk about how it is that so many people that have no experience in the classroom get to make choices for how schools run. Exactly. I do. I can't front. I do have this tiny little like daydream of going to a school board meeting in my hometown. And when those people pipe up, standing up and just, and saying like, you're uneducated. It's true though. And it's, but I, I know that would, it might make me feel good. It's not going to make the situation in my hometown any better. Um, but, probably not and i and but, i think the problem with it too you know with my hometown is and it's like i don't want to cast dispersions on my hometown that they're bad people they're not but it's just a yeah. place where like my dad we were talking about it with my family and my dad's like if i'm being honest like i don't really know many black people i don't see many black people my parents live in a small town mm-hmm. like with the exception mm-hmm. of a couple of our friends like my parents don't know black people and it's hard and I can and even in my experience understanding like it's hard to understand what they've gone through until you like really spend time with them and you know them and and like you start to empathize with their perspective and I'm not trying to make excuses for those people but I can understand how when you've never spent time with people of color you don't know any of them you don't do anything with them how you can just assume that what people are you know the people in power are telling you yeah it's oh it's wild it is really wild (laughs) oh it's so wild i always see like people are like those words it's like anti even anti-racism or anti-racist like people get really like really like tight about those words and I like wouldn't you not want people to be like I don't it's still I it's honestly just like I don't understand like you don't want people to be racist don't you like isn't that what we want yeah (laughs) that's my favorite thing on your Instagram is every day like I said every day I woke I wake up I know if I go onto your story there's going to be a spot that says don't be a racist oh it's wild it's wild all right man yeah, yeah I've been trying not to, to look at it too much, yeah. to be honest. Um, but yeah, it's not going. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I do want to kind of shift because you know I've I've had a couple of different conversations with you about the new direction for this book and for the podcast. So you know the basic idea is, as teachers, we want to inspire our kids, and the word inspire means to breathe life into. Um, like in the in the Greek, so as we're taking the, you know, the pod in a new direction this year, um, we want to be talking, you know, with teachers about who's inspired them, you know, breathe life into them and what they're doing to breathe life into their kids. So to kind of get on track with this thing, um, who have been people that have inspired you as an educator and, you know, what have they done to, you know, breathe life into your teaching craft? Mm, There's been so many people. Actually, you know what? Most recently, I I talked to. I always call her like my school mom. Um, she was my <clears throat> my principal in high school, so I got to see her. We talk a lot online, um, probably not enough, but she got after me a little bit 
most recently saying that I didn't I didn't see her. So I got to see her. I think it was like a couple days ago, and we sat and talked for about two hours. Um, and one of the things that I think I just love about her is like her authenticity about the love of like being pro kid. Like she is all about the growth of kids, um, no matter their situation, not necessarily just in the school system, but outside of school as well. Um, she does so much work in the community. Um, and that's what kind of inspired me to, to continue on through high school and try to do more, uh, whether it's through taking us on trips to see different schools in the States. We did a youth group. She took us to like Atlanta. Um, she took us to, I think it was Chicago once actually. Um, she had us go to local churches there. She had us doing local work in the communities there. Um, she was just really there for the kids that look like me. And she was not shy about saying it as well. Um, and I, again, that has kind of stuck with me my entire life, just knowing that I had someone like her um, to lean on. And the crazy part is her husband um, was my middle school um, principal for the longest time as well. And he was the exact same way. He coached me for like my entire life through middle school for basketball. He did a little bit in high school as well. And he was the exact same way. Pro kid, always, always, always going out of his way to support the kids in the community. Uh, whether it was like driving them to practices, taking us to tournaments. Um, and those are the type of people that you remember that go out of their way to help support you, not just necessarily in the classroom, um, but outside of the classroom as well. Because, you know, as well as I do, like as teachers, it doesn't say we have to do things like outside in the community, right? We don't have to go pick up kids and drive them there. We don't have to go to their games and watch them like play sports. Um, but often a lot of us do. Um, and they did that every single time without, without a question. So um, when you see, and, and you say pro kid, and I guess maybe I'm going to fumble this question a little bit, but it's okay. what happens when you're in a situation, you're in a classroom or something, and you have a choice between something that you, you know, spending your time doing something that you think is like pro kid versus like the other, you know, you talked about the real responsibilities of being a teacher. How do you, how do you balance those, you know, when you're trying to, or maybe even like, how do you talk to yourself through that? Cause I know early in my career, I was so focused on like my teacher duties that I missed a lot of those opportunities to do things that were pro kid. So, so how do you go through that, that, that thought process and that choice process of choosing to do what you know is pro kid? I think over time, it just, I think it does come over time through experience and just confident in how you are navigating whatever that situation is. And it's also trusting as well. I think it has to, you have to have people around you that you trust. Um, and if you don't trust them, I think I'm talking about like administration and like your teammates. Um, if you don't trust them, but you also feel like you're being pro kid, like that just takes a whole nother level of like 
courageousness and um, everything else out of you because you're going to be looked at as so many different things um, because we, we know just like other workplaces, um, school environments can be can be toxic. But for me, I think it's really asking myself, what am I doing to help this kid um, in this situation? And what is most important right now? And I'm a big like social and emotional person. So I will help and navigate social emotional work um, well before I get into um, curriculum work because I know that, you know, just as well as I do, those mandates on those papers and that assignment um, is not going to go anywhere, right? Um, but it takes, I think, a level of experience to tell yourself that I'm going to take that consequence. I'm going to be okay with not having that paper in or explaining to that teacher that they're going to be late for class or whatever it is. Um, because of experience. Um, so I think it's that, like really being sure of yourself, the experiences and talking to people who you believe are also um, pro-kid as well. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Oh man, you like, you are speaking like almost perfectly to the experience I'm having this year. Mm. Um, and I, I think it, the the piece you said that I think really stands out to me is that you have to be willing to accept that consequence. Like you have to be willing to say to a parent, like, yeah, I'm sorry, this thing didn't get graded. Or you have to say to your principal, Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't do this or we didn't do that. Um, but man, it, it just, it's so, and I think, you know, you said it's the experience of knowing like when and how to make those choices and when and how to prioritize. But man, it it's so strange to think that we have to talk about being pro-kid. Like, shouldn't sure. everybody be pro-kid? I mean, if you're you, in the profession. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. Like, man. It's man. true, though. Yeah. It's true. Um continuing to you know keep it moving because i know you got a lot going on today um we've talked about this you know ad nauseum with you um the reason we enjoy being with you that we talk to you that we come out and you know ask you for advice is because you're one of the realest people that we know mm. so as an educator because you know really authenticity is like a cornerstone of this book that we're writing as an educator you know and a person, what is the value of authenticity? Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> That's uh, quite the compliment. I, I think I could say the same thing about you guys. I think it, I, my wife is a really good um, indicator of individuals who are authentic. Um, and I learn a lot through just experiences, talking to her about like, how does she know these things? Um, and it just takes time. It just, I think over time you get to know someone and, um, they're not necessarily values because your values can be different, but you can still be authentic. Um, I think it's just, I think their, their reactions and their moments and their experiences with you, um, don't change over time. 
no matter the cer- cer- certain situation or circumstances. So I feel like oftentimes, like I'll use us as an example, like I can talk to you today and then not talk to you for like three months, but the same feeling of like love and um, brotherhood is not going to change. Right. Um, and I think that only happens when people um, or individuals or groups or whoever the case may be um, feel those things like together. Um, and I think time for the most part um, really shows what like true authenticity is. Um, and I think it's something we also should be explaining and helping kids navigate as well um, because they go through so many changes in regards to their identity and who they um, are friends with and who they think isn't their friend and who is their friend. Like there's so many things that they also go through um, that I think understanding that idea of being authentic would also help them um, throughout their educational journey as well. Man, yeah. Preach that. Um, (laughs) And that's just the thing. And I think, you know, even coming back to what you were talking about with being okay with being pro kid and making those choices, I think the the further I've gotten to be myself, the more authentic I've been, the easier it is for me to make that choice because I know it's in my values. Like I know it's something that's important to me. So that, man, that really speaks to me. So I'm going to kind of combine two questions here. Um, you are a storyteller not just as an author, but I mean, we've, Mm. as long as I've known you, you spin stories and you talk about it and you've always talked to us about how it's important for kids. You know, we, we started talking with you about, you know, kids seeing themselves in stories. So as, as an author and a storyteller, um, how do you, um, you know, inspire students through stories and, you know, how do you want to inspire students, especially with the books that you're writing? Yeah, I think to start, honestly, like as a kid growing up in Preston, Nova Scotia, Canada, a black kid growing up in Preston, Nova Scotia, Canada, which is like, it's not rare to me, but I think it's rare for other people. Um, I don't want it to feel rare, especially for those kids that are there right now. So why am I writing books? It's not for anyone else. It's for those kids who are there. It's for like the younger me who didn't have these books growing up um, about where they're from, the experiences that they had. Um, and then for everyone else in the world, it's kind of like, well, here's this story about this individual. Maybe you can learn from it. Maybe you can connect with it, et cetera, et cetera. Storytelling in general is just like so universal. Um, I think everyone is a storyteller without even thinking they're a storyteller. We're constantly sharing stories all the time, whether you are writing it down, whether you are having conversation with someone, um, whether you're drawing a picture, whether it's art, I think we often pigeonhole stere- or stere- pigeonhole storytelling into just writing, and it's not. It can be in so many different forms of like, it could be music, again, it could be art, um, it could be anything, it could be dance, Um, And I think the more we explain to kids that storytelling can be so many different forms, the easier it is going to be for kids to actually share those stories. Because every kid doesn't want to be a writer, but we ask them to write in the classroom every single day. 
mm-hmm. right? If we can somehow have kids take what they're doing and explain these stories through a podcast where they're actually talking about their stories or a drawing or whatever it is, like, is that not just as valuable, if not more valuable, right? Especially um, in the world we live in today. Right. So, um, yeah, I hope to just honestly be able to use those stories in my experience through this writing journey to continue to inspire younger writers to to want to share their stories again, not necessarily just through the writing, but just in general, um, in the multiple forms of media that are out there. And how do you how do you feel like whether it's in your classroom or with people day to day, you know, telling our stories, sharing our stories helps us. Well, let's focus it this way. You know, as a teacher, it can be so easy to believe that you should just keep your personal life to yourself. You should, you should have your professional life and your personal life. But in your mm-hmm. experience, how is sharing your story and other stories helped you build relationships with kids? Um, kids just want to connect, honestly. Like, they just want to know that you are, especially as a teacher, I find, they just want to know that you are human. Um, I did my first author visit the other day with a school in um, Morocco. So I taught with this friend um, in Singapore, and now she teaches in Morocco. And I talked to this fifth grade um, group of kids. And I'm going through my slides, and I'm like talking about my writing process. And what I love so much about this group of kids is that like, again, they just wanted to know that I was human. So what do you think the first question would be to an author that shows up? It's not about your writing process. It's not about what's your next book. They're like, um, Mr. Gray, who's your favorite football player? And I'm like, and it just, again, just mm-hmm. told me like, of course, that's a question you're going to be asking this like stranger in front of me who has mentioned that they enjoy sports, who's mentioned that they played um, basketball in university. Like they want to make a connection. So <laughs> the first thing I was like, okay, how many soccer players do I actually like remember? <laughs> so I was like, um, I think the ba- the best football player is, I think I said Messi. And you like the eruption, like with all of them, they just all went, crazy over me just answering a question about football and I thought that was like the coolest thing because one we made a connection and number two they noticed that I am like a normal person I'm not just like crazy um miss like crazy person who like doesn't really exist in the world that they're living in I'm still doing the exact same things that they're doing watching sports going to restaurants, hanging out with family, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was just so much fun. Um, but again, I think all those things allow kids to, to, to build relationships with, with, with the people in front of them, just sharing little things that um, connect with them. Yeah. And that's so funny. I, our, our school pictures, this is totally unrelated. Well, it's kind of related. Our school pictures came in finally today. And for uh-huh. some reason, they gave me an eight by 10, <laughs> an eight by 10 of my own face. So here's what I want to do this, you know, cause we got two days this week before the break. I'm going to photocopy it. I'm going to photocopy one copy for every kid and I'll pass it out and be like, all right, drawing contest. You I can, you, as long as it's school appropriate, you can draw whatever you want on my face, whatever, write a little that. backstory on it. I love that. And I'll give 
Starbucks to I love it a few kids you know and that's just the kind of stuff that you can do to make yourself a human being Uh I agree and I my wife was like I was like don't do that and I'm like what's the worst that's yeah I already know the kids are gonna you know write terrible you know like are gonna do mean stuff but man like it's it's just that stuff that you know you post five or ten of them around the room and the kids see Mm -hmm. that their work is up there it's going to be well worth 100 percent. the little bit of embarrassment i get from the kids and and they're going to i think you being so vulnerable like i've done similar things on C, like on seesaw like i would just post my face and ask them to i think i i think i actually drew on myself first and i was just like now it's your turn and it's the exact same thing like them knowing that you're being vulnerable and then i think you just have to say it once like yeah obviously we're going to be respectful but like yeah go to work like do your thing. I think it's going to, again, make you feel or make them feel that you are more human than, yeah. right? So yeah. I love that idea. Yeah, I'm excited for that. So as we kind of round this thing out and bring it in for a landing, if you don't mind, can you share a little bit about your book projects and your your writing process in particular i know you've talked a little bit about your writing process you know throughout this so maybe just the projects you're working on so people can get an idea of of where what you're doing and where you're going with it okay um so the first book is finished uh finished it about the end of summer um it's i've seen the illustrations and the illustrations should be uh, you know, the writing process in general just takes a long time. And I guess the publishing process also just takes a long time. Um, there's no official date, um, but the year is supposed to be 2023 um, with the first book. I'm currently working on the second book. Um, we have a concept. Um, I don't want to really share too much about the concept, but it's an experience with myself and uh, my grandfather. Um, and it's kind of the idea of um, what happens when two different worlds kind of collide a little bit um, based on some experiences that um, both of them kind of want to happen. So again, I, I, I'm just super excited about sharing these multiple stories that I've had in my head for so long. Um, and once I'm finished that book, um, hopefully I'll have something else coming um, within the following years as well. But 2023 will be the first one. Um, hopefully, I don't, I kind of want it to hurry up, but at the same time, I also love the the, the, the non-pressure um, of talking to people and pushing your book and all that stuff as well. Yeah, so, but it'll happen, it'll happen. Um, you know, this is a little bit of a selfish question, it's but okay. uh, any any advice for the, aspiring writers like us or storytellers whether they're in the teaching space or not um you know what what advice would you give to aspiring writers like us um i think it's just honestly patience um don't feel rushed into doing something that you don't want to or handing in something that you don't want to based on just wanting to get it out there um my the first book that I'm publishing like I think I started in 2011 or 2012 or something like that. And I did it on and off for X number of years. 
talking to my wife, talking to my cousin who's the writer. Um, everyone's journey is different, right? Um, and I think once we look at someone else's journey and want that, um, that's when we get into trouble, right? Um, I think when we really hone in on what we want to do, we find that purpose, that's when we can create like good work. And, and I think if you do good work, I think you will, if you want to, um, get noticed in that way, whether it's through a publisher or self-publishing, happen, right? Um, but it doesn't just happen overnight, that's for sure. Um, but I think it's just being patient. That's, I think that's my biggest advice is being patient. And don't be afraid to be like, get like rejected as well um, by either agents or publishing houses or just people that you want to look at your work as well. Um, try to feel feel okay with being rejected as well all right man before we wrap up people that want to connect with you find you talk with you see your videos where's the best place um you know i haven't i guess instagram and twitter are my like main platforms um and it's just gary r gray jr jr is jr um I want to say I haven't been posting as much, but I use I haven't posted as much as I used to post. Yeah. Um, but I am pretty active on on both of them. Uh, you can shoot me a message. My DMs are always open. I love good conversation. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you guys so much. And I mentioned at the the, the beginning of the the podcast, like being on an episode five or six times is an honor. Um, Dude. You guys inspired. You guys inspired my podcast. Honestly, having a conversation with you Dude. guys has inspired my podcast. So, um, you guys do good work. I we appreciate might, it. I'm I'm sure Will will be very apologetic this morning whenever he wakes <laughs> up. So there might be a chance that we might have to do episode seven or eight too. Before, while you're still while you're still, in, mm. it's a little easier to do it when you're in the Western Hemisphere. I appreciate you know. I send me a message, um, and even if it's not about podcast we can just hang out and talk yeah. and catch up as well Dude, so I'm all of that too. So, for that as well all right last question um it's kind of a playoff questions we've done before but if you could get a message out to every teacher give them a piece of advice that would inspire them breathe life into their practice what do you think that message would be it's a tough question there's so many things um I think during this time, at least, I would say um, to just something as simple as just take care of yourself. Um, and to elaborate a little bit on that, it's just like your mental health is really important. Um, if you don't be afraid to talk to someone, um, seek therapy. Um, whatever it is to, to make sure your mental health is okay because teachers are just really going through it right now. Um, and it's really hard. They're being put in positions that are really unfortunate. So do whatever you can, if possible, to take care of your, take care of yourself. Um, I know as an educator, you know as an educator, that the work that you're doing matters um, and it's important. Um, and we often don't. We don't take care of ourselves because we're thinking about the 20 some kids, hundreds some kids in front of us. So um, do what you need to take. Go out, eat that donut, eat that pizza, watch that movie, 
play that video game, <laughs> whatever you need to do <laughs> to take care of yourself because you're, you're important. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, we appreciate you and thanks for stopping by for, uh, you know, time number five of the podcast. As always, my guy, as always. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode with our friend Gary Gray Jr. We hope you enjoy it. Um, please make sure that if you don't follow Gary, you follow him on Instagram um, or Twitter, Gary R. Gray Jr. Um, follow us at the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok as well as it's Kyle Krieger and its.will.law.iii. We're hoping to share a lot more this year, really um, let you be more involved behind the scenes in what we do with teaching and the podcast. We're so excited to share what we've got with you this year. So have a great week. Talk soon.